Okay, so I have a couple of things. First off, uh, if this year, for some reason, a lot of you guys are really nice to me, and a lot of you gave me like little Christmas gifts. Thank you. All right, I, you, you don't you don't have to do it. I I never feel like you need to do that. But a lot of you guys gave me like a bunch of cookies. There's actually even this this package in the back after all the Christmas Eve services were over, and it said Aaron on it. And I'm like, I know there's other people with my name, but I don't know. So I opened it, right? And I know it was for me. It was an element shirt, and it said, and it said, I didn't buy this on the junior high girls' rack. <laughs> but it didn't say who it was from, so I don't know what it. But, <laughs> but a lot of a lot of people actually gave me things this year. Just thank you so much. And uh, if I haven't said it to you already, thanks. Uh, don't feel obligated to ever give me anything. All right, there you go. Um, also, uh, I have a quick announcement just to give you. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, Sean Jones was doing music for us. Every once in a while, you'll see him. He's a really tall guy, red hair. He used to have a really cool fro going on, but he cut it all off and became, you know, civilized. Whatever. I loved his hair the way it was. Anyway, but uh, he, he went off to school. And uh, when we were wondering what we were going to do with that, uh, Ryan actually sent me an email and said, Hey, you know, would you... You know, you're looking for somebody, and we were, were kind of doing things with a few different people at that point. And but Ryan was the guy I really wanted to have come and start doing it. And and I didn't approach him because I know he's you know he's had a new baby, he's really busy with just got a lot of things going on in his life, and he actually offered. So the last couple of years, Ryan's been doing it, and you know it's a mostly volunteer position that that he's doing this in. And for about the last year, he's been going, you know, I really, I really got to focus on my family more. I've got things. I'm really busy, and he's been very gracious because I kind of ignore him the entire time. Right, I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And, but he keeps saying about once a month he says it to me, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, and I just, I just ignore him. Well, if, you, if you've noticed, coming through this series, he's actually been doing every other week. And that was kind of our agreement. He does every other week, and then he does Christmas Eve, and then he's got this week, and then uh, the week after next, and then he's kind of done. And so, now, the reason I'm telling you this is he and his family are still going to be coming here. If I can twist his arm every once in a while, I'll get him back up here. Uh, but he may not do that. And he didn't want you guys to be all weird about that with him. All right? So if you seem like, hey, why aren't you up there? You know, just be, be grateful because he is doing something that God's calling him to do. To, you know, be part and take care of his family and spend more time there because this does take some of his time. And so when you see him, thank him for it. But don't be like, hey, why aren't you up there? Just let it be the great and good thing that it was that he for two years had been doing this with us. So when you see him, thank him. You know, don't make it all weird. He doesn't want it to be weird. We don't want it to be weird. You're like, what's Elmo going to do now? Wait and see. <laughs> That's what we're doing. We're waiting and seeing. <laughs> no, no, we, we got some irons in the fire. We're, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Uh, but actually, I'm, I'm still twisting his arm to get him to come back and do it every once in a while. So is his wife. <laughs> it's funny. He's like, he's like, I need to spend more time with you guys. And his wife's like, no, no, I'm, I'm an Aaron site. Let's get you up there doing it some more. But it's kind of funny. Kind of fun. Anyway, uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, I am one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are uh, sermon notes. Well, more questions and all the community tables around the room. You can grab one of those. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Uh, click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. If you're watching on the video, you can click 93455, and you will get uh, bring it up by GPS in that, and you'll get the sermon notes and all that kind of stuff that goes along with the message. So why don't you stand with me? Reading to God's Word. We'll get started. It says Luke chapter 4, verse 40, and it says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. 
Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we'd be a people who understand what it means to notice those around us as you did. And what that noticing entails and what that noticing ultimately brought to your people. And so have us live in such a way that you are honored and glorified by the way that we notice because you have first noticed us. Amen. Have a seat. So we are still in this series about Jesus. It started a couple months before Christmas. And as churches, I know we're always supposed to talk about Jesus, and we always do. But this is more of a focused thing about Jesus, about what he has done, what he continues to do, how he inspires us personally and the world around us. Uh, so this is week 12. There's been 11 before this. There'll be two after this. We recommend if you missed some of them, you would go back and listen to them because Jesus is simply amazing. And today we're going to show you another amazing thing about Jesus, that if you spend any time in the scriptures, you will come to know. Notice, and that is the fact that Jesus noticed people and their needs. Open your Bibles to John chapter 9. About four years ago, we went to the Gospel of John, and we kind of talked about this then as well. Uh, in John chapter 9, you meet a man who has a disability. And the thing about disabilities is when you see someone with a disability, you don't automatically think of their parents, maybe what their parents have gone through in the midst of all that as well. Now, my wife and I, we tried to have kids for a really long time. And every time I say that, some of you think that you need to come and instruct me better ways to do it. But we know how to do it. We're doing it just fine. We don't need your help. Okay? So don't go, be, oh, here. I, one person tried to give my wife magic earrings once. Like, put these on when you do it and and we don't need superstition we know what we're doing it's a medical thing we got it okay so don't tell us how to do it now i remember the one time that my wife and i finally knew that we actually were pregnant one one time and i totally freaked out i was like oh my goodness what's going on how what's going to happen i had all these questions and i had only known like for five minutes and this is why today there's this great thing called google because you can learn all kinds of things if you don't know what's going on. Plenty of places to ask questions about pregnancy. One of the most popular online is a website called parenting.com. So a lot of women ask questions on this about being pregnant and having a baby. Funny enough, it's run by a man. <laughs> Number one question on the website from women is, when will my morning sickness end? <laughs> now the guy who does this, his name is Dr. Sears. He's a funny dude. Because uh, one of the other questions is, I am two months pregnant now. When will my baby move? And the answer is, with any luck, after he finishes high school. (laughs) Okay, now, in John chapter 9, you meet this couple, and they find out they're going to have a baby. And I'm sure that they are scared to death and really excited all at the same time. And so they give birth to this little baby boy. They count all of his fingers, count all of his toes, two ears, one mouth, two eyes. But maybe there's something a little different about his eyes. But they're still excited. They tell their friends. They thank God. But as the boy grows up, they gradually begin to realize that something's wrong. The little boy doesn't respond normally to visual cues. He doesn't even seem to notice or recognize objects around him. And eventually they realize their little boy can't see. Now, in ancient times in Israel, there weren't all the things we have today to maybe go and figure out what's wrong, to see if we can find a way to medically fix it or do something about that. Uh, There aren't any classes for parents to help raising kids who are blind. Braille hasn't been invented yet. There's really no help at all. And as the boy grows up, he probably doesn't have a lot of friends. No one's really going to play with him because he can't see what they're doing. His parents realize he will probably never get married. They'll probably never have any grandchildren by him. He's not ever going to hold a job other than probably being a beggar. And because Israel was the only country who had a God who, a God who said that he valued children, they're probably worried what's going to happen to him after they're dead and gone. Then you have all the other people around him who walk by when they see him. They don't really seem to notice or care because they have very busy lives. I mean, they're doing things as well. Until one day, John chapter 9 happens, and we read about it, because Jesus takes his disciples by this man, and they finally notice him. 
You've got to understand something about rabbis and their disciples. The rabbis are always taking their disciples into all kinds of places so that their disciples would ask questions about things. If you're a disciple, you're supposed to be on high alert to look around and say, what's going on here, what's going on there, and then to begin to ask your rabbi about all of those things. I personally believe that Jesus took his disciples by this guy for the purpose of them noticing him and asking the questions that were going to be asked. So open to so if you're John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. What you will see is that when Jesus notices needs, sometimes it's not always how we notice them, and it turns out a little bit differently as well. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And so he notices this guy because he notices this guy. His disciples then notice him, notice this guy, so they notice this guy. It's like a tongue twister or something. It's very important because religious leaders in this day would normally walk by someone who was disabled and not look at them at all. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's a strange question for us today. Like, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? In that day, it's, it's a normal question. If you were born blind or with a disability or something wrong, well, that's because you did something wrong. And our question should be, well, how could it be your fault if you were born blind? How, how could you do something wrong that way? Well, good question. All right, so I'll answer that for you. There's a teaching among some religious leaders in Jesus' day that it was possible for a baby to be born having sin. Not like a sin nature from Adam, but actually born having already sinned. Now, how? Well, they would say if a mother-to-be walked into a heathen temple, the fetus was actually judged guilty by these religious leaders, not by God, don't put that on him, Ricky Bobby, okay? Not by God, but by the religious leaders of the sin of idolatry. So they believed in this superstition that the fetus could sin. And if you think that somebody's sin has caused them to be disabled or suffering, you feel less inclined to help them. I know I personally, if I drive by, you know, a homeless guy who's begging and yet he smells like booze, I am less inclined to help him. College kids, I just really need a job because you smoked dope the entire time in college and flunked out. I am less inclined to help. These people would go so far as to take it all the way back to birth and say, well, if you're born blind, well, that's your fault. And that's the weird thing about religion is sometimes it'll make you less compassionate. Jesus is a former carpenter from Nazareth. He's God over all creation, and he notices this man. And again, when he notices, the disciples have noticed him, notice him, so they notice as well. They want to notice, so that's why they ask who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus' answer is amazing. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus makes a distinction right away between what we see and what God sees. And this is kind of a funny verse because I could use this to show you that Jesus was a Calvinist or Calvin was right or Calvin was a Jesusist or Jesus taught good reformed theology because this is the whole idea behind it. This is religion starts with you. Christianity starts with Jesus. Religion says, well, they're good and they're bad people. Jesus says, they're all bad people and there's me. That's why you need me for salvation and life. Religion is all about what I do. Did I go to the right meetings? Did I speak in tongues? Did I lift my hands? Did I pray really hard? Christianity is all about Jesus. And Jesus says, it is finished. I paid the price. I bore the cost. Religion's goal is to always try and get things from God. Christianity's goal is always Jesus. In the meantime, we cut our lawns, we live our lives, and we love Jesus. Religion sees suffering and hurting people as being punished by God. Oh, you're sick. You lost your job. You were born blind. Well, you know what? What'd you do wrong? Religion gives people nothing. And even today, every stupid guru from Deepak Chopra to Oprah to Dr. Phil to half the crazies on Christian TV all blame you for something going wrong in your life. And sometimes there isn't a cause and effect of it. 
Now, sometimes it's true. I mean, sometimes it is your fault. Like, you don't have any money to make rent because you smoked it all? Yeah, that's your fault. Okay, maybe you live in a tent in the park because Bud Light is your true soulmate? Well, yeah, okay, that's your fault. Okay, that's your fault. But sometimes, you know, they would go so far as to say, oh, well, you're born blind or your child gets sick. These people would say, well, if you did it better, if you thought the right thoughts, if you had enough faith, well, it would all just get better. Jesus said, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, God did it. That's what he says. There is a propensity for people to run from the fact that God is in charge. Christians are always trying to make up excuses to defend God for things he never tries to defend himself against. There's become a search in Christianity today to try to let God off the hook for all the problems of the world as if he's not in control. You can never get around God's sovereignty. And this is something you and I will struggle with our entire lives following Jesus. But it can also be comforting in the best possible way. God is in charge. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. You can leave it in his hands. Jesus says, this happens so the work of God might be displayed in his life. God had this man born blind for God's work? Yes. Well, what is that work? That God would be glorified. This is what Trevor kind of talked about last week. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God does everything for his glory, and that's why we should too. The reason this man was noticed by Jesus was for the glory of God. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So he includes his disciples and you and I in that redeeming work. Night is coming, pointing to the cross when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. He says to his disciples, you're asking all the wrong questions. What you're doing is looking for somebody to blame. You need to start looking for someone to notice and to help to the glory of God. That's what he's saying. And we do this all the time with suffering around us or our own suffering. What's the cause and effect? Jesus says sometimes there's not a cause and effect. Sometimes God allows things in our lives to help grow us. He says, instead, you need to look for what God can and will do. And that's what Jesus does. And so then he performs this miracle. He spits on the ground. He makes some mud, rubs it in the guy's eyes. The guy is blind, which I guess is a good thing, because if I saw it coming, I would duck or flinch. Like, "Ah, I don't need spit and mud in my eyes, Jesus. Uh, One commentator says that Jesus put the mud in the guy's eyes to make sure he would follow Jesus' command to go wash it out, because we would wash it out, hopefully. Uh, Other commentators believe that Jesus was actually taking this, this mud and this clay and making new eyes, because the guy was born blind, so he needed new eyes, and by doing this, he was actually making new eyes and healing the guy. Either way, the guy's able to see. And what you now notice is that other people finally notice this man and how they respond to this miracle. You will see the man's neighbors, the Pharisees, the parents, and the man himself and how they all respond to this. Because you would think everyone would just be totally excited. Yay, Jesus healed somebody. He was blind. You can see. That's not really how it works. The story goes like this. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I I am the man. Now, when you're disabled, when you're suffering, people, then, again, tend not to notice you. And so, since they're not paying very much attention to him, when he's healed, they're like, is that really him or is it not really him? They've seen him day after day, but they still can't decide, is it him or not? So he has to say, it's me. And they're like, no, it's not you. And he's like, no, 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 it is me. Oh, how do you know it's you? Have you ever seen you? No, you've been blind. We've seen you. We know it's not you. 
people get all weird when God shows up. Verse 13, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Now the man's reaction is his first stage of his understanding of faith. He listened to what Jesus said and he did what Jesus said to do. He just trusted him. You've got to notice throughout the story, this guy's understanding of Jesus is going to completely deepen. This healing becomes so mysterious, the neighbors couldn't figure it out. So they take the man to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who think that they can offer an explanation to why the guy can see. Now here comes the rub. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Guys, smell what's coming, right? Okay. The way this works, you've got the Ten Commandments. What do religious leaders notice? The Ten Commandments, that's what they noticed, right? Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. See, the idea is that the Sabbath was a day where you and I are supposed to be able to rest and worship God and reflect on who he is and what he's doing. It's supposed to be a day that God gave to us. But these people started to ask, well, what's work and what isn't work? And so a whole host of rules got put into place to determine what was okay and what wasn't. We call these stupid human laws. Okay? They all got put into place. On the Sabbath day, they determined you could not do any work that would include kneading, like making dough. And if you took and you spit in mud and made mud and the clay, you're breaking the rules because you're kneading these things. Also on the Sabbath, healing, oddly enough, was not allowed. Okay, the rule was you could receive medical attention on the Sabbath only if your life was in danger. Only if your life was in danger. And then only for the purpose of keeping you from dying, not from improving your condition. That wasn't allowed. Death prevention, okay. Improvement, not okay. If you were out and you sprained your foot or dislocated your shoulder and popped it back in or something, you were not even allowed to pour cold water on the wound because it may help heal the sprain. And that was not allowed. So Jesus does two things. First, he heals on the Sabbath, and secondly, he kneads this mud, into like this clay, on the Sabbath and heals the guy. What do the Pharisees notice? That's what they notice. That's what they notice. The Pharisees start arguing about this guy. Some don't know what to think. You're going to read this over the next few verses, but in verse 17, they start grilling this poor guy. They say, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And I think in the few verses, this man's been thinking about this and what's going on. So he says, he is a prophet. Now, the Pharisees don't like this answer, so they call him the guy's parents. And they say, is this your son? How can he now see? And the parents are in a predicament. It's like, what do I do? The Pharisees are going after me. You know, they, they kind of run the religious things. What am I supposed to do? It's like when a cop pulls you over for speeding. And he says, do you know why I pulled you over? You know why he pulled you over? But you go, I don't know. It's exactly what's going on here. And so they're like, uh, I don't know uh, what's going on with, with, with all of this. Anything you say is just going to be bad. And so in verse 20, his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Dodge that bullet, right? That's what what they're thinking. So the Pharisees call this guy back in again. I think this guy is one of the most compelling characters in the Gospel of John because he has wisdom and he has honor and he stands up for who Jesus is. They say to him, verse 24, Give glory to God. That is exactly what this guy and Jesus have both been trying to do the entire time. Praise God. They say, we know this man, that's Jesus, is a sinner. We've noticed him, and we know he's a sinner. Verse 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. 
And this guy is just brilliant. you got these religious leaders coming and hammering him, and what does he do? He tells a story. That's what he does. When you have a story about how Jesus came and changed your life, some people will get really irritated about it. They don't believe in God or don't believe that Jesus could be that good to you or that good to them. This is why our stories are so important. This is why if you get baptized in element, we help you to write your story so everybody knows the story of how you came to follow Jesus. You know, you say, I I once was lost, now I'm found, I was blind, now I see, I was enslaved, now I'm free. It's very hard to argue with a story. So they try again, verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And I think by this point, the guy is just getting a little irritated by the same questions, kind of like my wife does when I keep asking her the same thing over and over and over. We had one of those conversations last night. <laughs> he, he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. What, why do you want to hear it again? And then he says this, do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> oh, I just love this guy. He's amazing. He's amazing. But it also tells you, do you also? So he is determined now in his mind that he is going to follow Jesus. Verse 28, And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And that's a slam against Jesus' birth. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this were not from if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered, You were born in utter sin because you were born blind, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. They said, Find another church, weirdo. Send him packing. Again, this guy has courage and honesty that's staggering in the story. And this is the beauty of it, because just like in the garden, you know, in the fall when we were lost and alone, God noticed our state and God came looking for us. Just like Jesus now comes looking for this man. He is rejected. He is excommunicated. He is alone. The leaders of his faith have pushed him out, and Jesus comes looking for him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, Jesus found him. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now see, John loves these metaphors of light and dark. John illustrates this man's progression from the darkness of blindness to the light of salvation and coming to see, from death into life. And throughout the text, you see these descriptions of this awakening. In verse 11, it's the man they call Jesus. In verse 17, he's the prophet. Verse 33, it's from God. Verse 35, he's the son of man. And finally, in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. See, God's glory is made manifest in this man's life through the progression from darkness of blindness to the light and healing of salvation. In one chapter, the guy goes from, I don't know the man, to he's a prophet, to it must be from God, to addressing Jesus with one of the great confessions of the gospel. Lord, I believe, I trust you, and then he worships Jesus. I mean, this blind man saw clearer than anybody else in the story, all because Jesus first noticed him. And his response is worship. That's his response. Now, when the disciples look at this guy, what they notice is a theological discussion. I can ask Jesus some questions about this guy. When the neighbors look at this guy, they probably notice an eyesore. He's been sitting there for too long. When the Pharisees look at this guy, they notice a violated Sabbath, a broken rule. But when Jesus looks at him, Jesus notices a child of God who has suffered and yet is redeemed by the power of God, which then leads to a level of spiritual insight that we are still talking about today 2,000 years later. 
God's glory caused him to notice this man, to seek him out and to heal him. When we think about the word notice, we think, well, someone's paying attention to me. Someone's giving me something. Jesus' noticing is for healing and salvation and God's glory. That's what Jesus' noticing is about. Jesus' noticing is he's noticing the work of God in people's lives. And all throughout the New Testament, you will see things like this. People will come and they will flock to Jesus. People with leprosy who weren't supposed to be around anybody else would break the law just to get close to Jesus. But if you notice in a lot of the encounters, Jesus doesn't give people what they want. He gives people what they need. In Luke chapter 8, there's a woman been bleeding for years. So she's unclean. She's not supposed to be around her or touch people. When she hears about Jesus, she fights her way through a crowd. She touches the hem of Jesus' robe and she is instantly healed. And Jesus points her out. And in Luke 8, 48, he finally looks at her and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Daughter, faith, well, peace. Daughter, faith, well, peace. It is healing physically, but more importantly, spiritually. She is brought to true life again. Luke chapter 5, some friends break through a roof of a house with their buddy who is paralyzed. They lower him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man in Luke five twenty and says, Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. People got mad about that. Well, only God could forgive sins. Why did he say your sins are forgiven? Because that's mostly what the guy needed, but everybody in the room would be judging this guy. Oh, he's paralyzed because of something that he did. So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, you know, what's harder, to forgive sins or heal a body? In Luke 5, 24 and 25, it says, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. See, Jesus healed the guy's body. But what did he do first? Healed his soul. Healed his soul. He notices what we need, not just what we want. This man goes and he glorifies God because his soul was saved, not just his body healed. And see, people knew this. The more and the more they got to know Jesus, that Jesus noticed, he cared, he saw, he touched, Jesus saved. I think if we would only notice the same way Jesus did, things would begin to change in our lives as well. In Mark chapter 3, a man with a withered hand, he walks up to Jesus. It's on a Sabbath day. There's a crowd around. A lot of them are religious experts. And so Jesus says, what do you think I ought to do? It's a Sabbath. Is a Sabbath for doing good or evil? What do you think I should do? And he waits for these people to answer. And nobody says a word. In Mark 3, 5, the text says, And he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have liked to think if I was in that setting, I would like to say, Heal him, Jesus. That'd be awesome. I'd love to see it. I'd think. But really, I probably wouldn't have. Because I'm sure on the backside, a lot of people would say, Oh, yeah, I really should have asked Jesus to heal him. I should have stood up. I should." I think a lot of people would have said that, but we're so caught up in our cultural context, we probably wouldn't have either. Because how often are there suffering people in our world today? And we are so preoccupied with our own life and we're just silent. You know, how often do we really notice what Jesus notices? I mean, in the New Testament, we we are told that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He is our Sabbath rest. That every day for us, because we have been saved by him, every day is essentially a Sabbath rest for us. So is the Sabbath for doing good or for doing evil? Good. Thank you, three of you. All right. Sabbath is for doing good. Good. Now, I've told you throughout this series that Jesus' church went, and when they saw suffering and sickness, they had a response to it, and that's how Jesus changed the Roman Empire. Rodney Stark, who's a historian sociologist, writes this. Those teachings of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself, is more blessed to give than to receive. Whatever you have done to the least of these you have done to me. These were not just slogans. People actually did this stuff. Members did nurse the sick, even during epidemics. There is no other community like this. They did support orphans and widows and elderly and the poor. And why did they do that? Because Jesus first noticed them. 
That's why they did it. And today, there's still people in our world spiritually and physically sick. And we are called to notice and make a difference in both. Too often, we get caught up in one or the other. It's, oh, we're going to go and just take care of these needs without ever preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs to be preached. Sometimes people are like, oh, I'm just going to go preach at them. I don't care about whatever needs they have. We're just going to hand them tracts and we're going to fix it. It's both. It's, It's coming together. You know, how does this work? Let me give you a couple examples. Element works with a group called Access Life International. One of the things they do is get clean drinking water to places on the planet. Right now, they're heavily involved in Indonesia. And so what they do is they go in, they hire some local workers. They're a Christian organization. They go and hire some local workers, dig some wells. And in Indonesia, you're not allowed to proselytize. You're not allowed to talk about Jesus unless somebody asks you. These people are like, why are you building wells for us? Why are you paying us to dig these wells? Why are you? And they say, because Jesus calls us to care for people. Jesus came. He died. He rose from the dead. And and they get to talk about those things. So it's not only about giving them clean water. It's also about giving them living water. They also do this thing called free wheelchair mission, where there's people in third world countries that, that can't get out, can't get mobile. Maybe they've broken a leg, lost a limb. Maybe they're born paralyzed in some way. And so what they do is they get wheelchairs to these people to finally make them mobile again. Why are you doing this? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to. It calls us to. And you should believe in Jesus because he's the one who loves you more than you could ever, ever imagine. You know, we talk about the Tamar Center in Thailand who help these, helps these girls get out of prostitution. I mean, the reason they do this is because of Jesus. Jesus goes in and he says, reach these people. And they say, great. They go into the bars. They invite these women out. They teach them skills. But they also talk about the gospel. The Tamar Center is all referencing Tamar in the Old Testament scriptures. It's all about teaching people about Jesus. Uh, CareNet in our own town. The, they do this thing where they help you know, girls who have maybe gotten into some trouble sexually or have some issues, and they go in and they not only help these girls in their need, they also preach the gospel both. It is about noticing physical and spiritual needs. And there's millions of other things going on in the world, like malaria and tuberculosis and, and, and lost children. And I'm not trying to make any of you feel guilty about not doing more. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not the point of scriptures. I mean, most Christians will say, I want to make a difference. I don't need more statistics. You know, I know the verses. I don't need the guilt. But our lives are so full. We have all these first world problems. It's like, you know, we've got soccer leagues and work schedules and family events and church life and bills to pay and errands to run. And sometimes when we hear about the immensity of the need that's around our world, we can get overwhelmed by how little that we think we can do. When we hear about someone like, like a Mother Teresa, we're like, wow, I don't either have the energy or the brains to do what she did. What is a reasonable response for God's people in noticing? Well, here you go. First off, nobody can do everything. Okay? So just breathe a sigh of relief. Okay? Nobody can do everything. But everybody can notice. Everybody can notice. And then with Jesus, everybody can do something. This is one of the reasons we try and talk to all of our gospel communities into having a missional focus. And sometimes, you know, we don't, or it's just that, well, we don't know what to do. We'll do something. Just once. Just try something. Get something going. Because everybody can notice in our ordinary, everyday lives. So, I'll give you three things you can do in this. Number one, simply, go through your day and ask Jesus for eyes to see like he sees. See the things he does as you look around the world around you. Uh, maybe you see somebody who needs some help. Maybe somebody, it's, maybe it's a physical ailment. Maybe it's, maybe it's somebody who just needs you to say hi to them and see how they're doing. Maybe you look at your own story and something you've gone through. Maybe you've been scarred or abused and you have these wounds inside of you. How does God want to use those to help somebody else? Second thing, serve in some area. Not some area like the country, but, you know, some area, okay? Serve in some area. I've got to be careful how I say that because I talk fast. I know, I get it, okay? So you serve in some area 
area. Uh, not every moment or every day, but, but maybe if you can't figure it out, just once somewhere. See if something resonates in your heart, because sometimes God might be calling you somewhere, and you may not even notice until you actually try it. So try something. I mean, it could be something as simple as children's ministry here. It could be Christmas for kids. It could be some project in our city. It could be going into an elderly home and spending some time with some elderly people who are all alone. Maybe it's opening your home as a foster home. And I think the third thing you do is ask God for a soft heart. Because people who are hurting do need to be noticed. But I don't think they need to be noticed in a victim sort of way. We need to notice in a way that offers hope and redemption and always point to Jesus and his glory. I'll give you an example. Last year, we had a girl who played on one of our softball teams. She got in a car crash. Uh, she, she, was, she wasn't driving. She was in the passenger seat, and she eventually died. Now, Britt, who's kind of the coach over our teams, was really sad about that. You could see it on his face and his demeanor. He was spending a lot of time with the family and friends of this girl, most who were not believers, and it's really affecting him. So we had this conversation about it. We talked for a while, and at the end of the conversation, I said this. I said, Britt, how are you, rather than being drawn into the anger and sadness, how are you bringing hope? and showing the light of Christ to them. Because that's what we're to do. I, I know sometimes we get so caught up in what's going on, but ours is to step back and look at the greater picture and say, what am I called to be? Light, hope, life. I am Jesus' representative. I am his ambassador to this world. That's what I need to bring. And it's kind of clicked, and the whole situation kind of changed. See, we don't need to get angry and bitter like so many people who are hurting. We need to be a people full of light and hope and life of Christ. It's something we can only do in his strength. We must remember verses like Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that tells you? He noticed us. He noticed us. In our plight, in our state, in our lostness, he noticed us. So we notice others to the glory of God. We are to be those who speak of this great salvation that touch souls physically and spiritually and to make a difference and always be his ambassador everywhere we go. That is what we are called to be. And sometimes noticing is going to take a whole lot of different aspects. It's, it's not going to look like maybe you think it, it does. But it will look like something. Something. And so we become a people who notice because Jesus inspires us to notice. Because he first saved us. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every single week. Uh, communion is the place where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. Uh, you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of God's blood that was shed for you and I so that we are a people who could actually live and walk in redemption and notice that God has noticed us so we notice others. This is the idea behind it. Uh, the band's going to come up, and as they do, we invite you guys, as I said, to take communion. Uh, and, and sing some of these songs, maybe reflect on what God is doing. Maybe take some time and pray, God, what are you calling me to notice around me? Maybe it takes some time to just be so thankful that God has first noticed us and that God has come and redeemed and he has saved us. I mean, it's, I mean that, that's a great thing to, to realize and notice and think about and pray about and focus on. But in that, we don't get caught up in ourselves. We get caught up in what Jesus calls us to do, and that's notice other people around us as well. And so we do that. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, they'd love to pray with you. I mean, maybe you've been in a spot in your life and you feel like, I need some help. I need some help. They would love to sit down and pray with you and maybe help you learn how to notice what God has done and what God is calling you and I both all to do. Uh, there's offering box inside of one in the back. And so God gave so much to us, giving us a simply part of our worship. So you have the opportunity every week. And then there's food and stuff in the back. And the food's always there to try and get you guys to connect to one another. Because this is, again, something we will never fully notice what we're supposed to notice if we're doing it all on our own. 
We're going to start to notice more and more of ourselves and not others. So we have people around us that come alongside of us and help us to notice the things we're supposed to notice. Because God is good. Jesus has been immensely, immensely good to you and I. He has noticed us in our state and brought you and I to a place of salvation. He is good. He is the one who has done it. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has noticed us. So how about you and I begin to notice those around us as well? Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand the great gift that your salvation is, and that we would be humbled by it, and that we would live lives that fully reflect who you are, what you have done, what you continue to do, that we would be a people who live as your ambassadors to this world, helping people to understand and know that the great God has saved us, has noticed all of us. Father, teach us as your people to live live lives of grace and hope and truth. That we wouldn't just think that salvation is for us and us alone. And we would simply bow to your great grace and majesty. And that we would notice the things that you call us to notice. But as we understand the more, more and more the extravagance of your love, the more and more we would be humbled. The more and more that we would live lives that fully reflect the goodness of you. And as we realize that we are safe in your hands, we would step out into places that maybe are not so safe. As we notice we offer the same grace that you've given to us to others thank you for noticing us thank you for saving us teach us to notice others around us as well we ask this in your son's good name amen